Hi, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith, and I'm the lead pastor of the Life Christian Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us today. Hey, I want to take the next few minutes to talk about how to turn setbacks into victories. Let me begin by telling you about a friend of mine, Bob Wyland. Bob was a fantastic high school athlete, and he was drafted by the Philadelphia Phillies to play Major League Baseball. Soon thereafter, he was drafted by Uncle Sam and sent to Vietnam. On his second day in Vietnam, uh, while trying to save a fellow soldier who had been wounded, Bob stepped on a landmine. His legs went one way, his body another. Bob went from being a six-foot, two-inch a professional athlete to being a two-foot, ten-inch wounded warrior. He spent the next several tragic months of his life in a hospital where he fought severe depression and thought about committing suicide. But he confessed his faith in Jesus, and as part of his newfound relationship with God, he found purpose in his life. He found a lot of purpose in physical fitness. He started working out. He started breaking world records, like the world record in bench press. He became an inspiration to many. He was appointed by uh, our president to the president's National Council on Physical Fitness. He ran the New York City Marathon and others using his hands. He um, became the strength and motivational coach for the Green Bay Packers. He was such an inspiration to players in the NFL that in 1996, they named him the most courageous man in America. Perhaps the most impressive thing Bob has ever done, though, was to walk across America on his hands. I said to walk across America on his hands to raise money for people who were hungry. It was called the Walk for Hunger. And uh, Bob spent almost four years walking across America from California to Washington, D.C., where he uh, ended his walk at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial there in D.C., and he laid a wreath uh, by the name of the soldier that he had been trying to save when he stepped on the landmine. President Ronald Reagan welcomed Bob to the Oval Office. I asked Bob what did he say to the president? And Bob said, have you ever had anyone walk 4,900,016 steps on their hands just to say hello to you? Uh, Bob uh, worked for me or with me, perhaps I should say, in a ministry that I had for a number of years where we spoke to high school students and to college students on various campuses around the country. Bob would attract the crowd, he'd motivate them, and then I would have a chance to share the good news with them. Bob is an amazing man who somehow learned to turn a tremendous life setback into a victory not only for himself, but for many, many others. All of us admire people who take the worst life can offer and not only survive, but grow deeper and stronger and leverage their suffering to inspire and serve and empower others. As you know, truly successful people are not those whose lives are without setbacks. They are people who have learned 
by God's grace to take the inevitable losses of life and somehow continue to win. They survive tremendous pain and go on to other victories. They thrive in spite of suffering. Their suffering became redemptive. They end up with more than they had before they suffered loss. It doesn't mean that their loss wasn't real, just that somehow it got turned into something good. Dr. King said, this is the way of Christ. It is the way of the cross. We must somehow believe that unearned suffering is redemptive. Here's a taste of what Scripture has to say about this. This is James writing to the church in the first century. And this is an example of what Scripture has to say throughout about the subject of suffering. James wrote, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be ready for anything. So today, I want to use a story from the life of King David to illustrate how to turn a setback into victory. Now David, as most of you surely know, was the second king of Israel the greatest king of Israel, at the root of his success was God saying, I have found David a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to. David was an imperfect man, but at his core, there was an instinct to do right. And we can learn a lot by studying David. Pastor Luke Barnett spoke for us last week. He did an amazing job. He talked a lot about David and touched on the story I'm about to tell. And when he did, my heart jumped because I'd been thinking and praying about doing the message I'm doing today, and it was kind of like a confirmation that I should uh, say the things that had been on my heart uh, that came to me from reading the story that I'm about to read to you now. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 30. And... Uh, it says that when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on background or geography or a lot of detail today because I want to let the story speak for itself and dig into it. But, but I'll just say that at this time, about a thousand years before Christ, David was living in exile with a, with a, uh, a, a small army. He'd been anointed king of Israel, but hadn't ascended to the throne yet. Uh, this was going to happen soon after the story that I've started reading to you. And uh, there was uh, an ancient enemy of, of the Israelites named the Amalekites, one of the oldest nations, in fact, I think maybe even the first nation mentioned in Scripture, who were constantly attacking uh, the, 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 the Israelites. And so the Amalekites have attacked Ziklag, where David and his men lived, and they've, they've destroyed it with fire, and they've taken uh, the, the wives of David's army and their children captive. So, we're told in verse 4, David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. 
David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. David and the 600 men with him came to the Bazor Valley where some stayed behind. 200 of them were too exhausted to cross the valley. But David and the other 400 continued the pursuit. And there they were, the Amalekites, scattered over the countryside, eating, drinking, and reveling because of the great amount of plunder they had taken. David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. David recovered everything the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing, young or old, boy or girl, plunder or anything else they had taken. David brought everything back. Now, the New Testament tells us that Old Testament stories are examples for us. Now, obviously, this was an ancient time, again, some 1,000 years before Christ. Therefore, this is a before-Jesus reality in every way. But we can learn valuable spiritual lessons from stories like this, including the physical battles that were fought. So, let me do it this way. I want to offer from this story five steps to turn setbacks into victories. And here's the first one. It's go ahead and cry. Go ahead and cry. If you're following on your life notes, which you can find there on your screen or device, you'll want to write that down. It's, it's an important uh, principle for life and what happens when we face setbacks. Go ahead and cry. Here's what the text says. When David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. Now, I grew up being told that big boys don't cry. If I heard that once when I was growing up, I heard it a thousand times. Big boys don't cry. But David was a big boy. And when he suffered loss, he cried until he could cry no more. Jesus was a big boy. Yet we're told that when his friend Lazarus died and when uh, the, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha, friends of Jesus, uh, uh, had a lack of faith in that moment that Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible, as you probably know, but it conveys something significantly important. Jesus wept. There's another occasion when Jesus looked at the city of Jerusalem and he knew that the people he loved there were lost and he cried openly. Luke's gospel says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now look, there are some things that we probably shouldn't cry about. I remember a, 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 a kid on one of my son's baseball teams who, uh, when he had trouble throwing strikes or when the umpire wasn't calling strikes, probably from his and his parents' perspective, this, this, this kid would break down crying on the mound. Now to something like that, I, I would say, uh, 
Big boys and girls don't cry about something like that. We learn to overcome it and develop character and get bigger than that. So this doesn't mean that we're supposed to cry about anything and everything. But there is a time when big boys and girls do or at least should cry, whether literally or figuratively. Here's the perspective of a couple of authors that I enjoy. One a woman, uh, Anne Lamont, the other a man, John Eldridge. Let me take a moment and just read a little bit of their beautiful writing from their perspectives about grieving losses. Here's what Anne Lamont says in Traveling Mercies. The lifelong fear of grief keeps us in a barren, isolated place. Only grieving can heal grief. The passage of time will lessen the acuteness, but time alone, without the direct experience of grief, will not heal it. I'm pretty sure that it is only by experiencing that ocean of sadness in a naked and immediate way that we come to be healed, which is to say that we come to experience life with a real sense of presence and spaciousness and peace. That's Anne Lamott. John Eldridge, in a book written for men, to men, called Wild at Heart, said this from the perspective of a man. What a milestone day that was for me when I simply allowed myself to say that the loss of my father mattered. The tears that flowed were the first I'd ever granted my wound, and they were deeply healing. All those years of sucking it up melted away in my grief. It is so important for us to grieve our wound. It is the only honest thing to do. For in grieving, we admit the truth that we were hurt by someone we loved, that we lost something very dear, and it hurt us very much. Tears are healing. They help to open and cleanse the wound. Grief is a form of validation. It says the wound mattered. See, to be healthy people, we simply must grieve our losses. We must not miss grieving our losses. Jesus said that we would be comforted in our grieving. Blessed are those who mourn, he said, for they will be comforted. I saw an article this week by a psychotherapist. It was an article in the New York Times. The title of the article is, We Are All Grieving. We are all grieving. And I think in the midst of this pandemic, that is a very real and true statement. And we must not miss the reality of our grief. We may be grieving something as relatively innocuous as a temporary loss of freedom or something as unspeakably painful and life-altering as the loss of a loved one. Many of us or those close to us are grieving the loss of, of income or a, a job or the loss of a dream or a, or a setback to a dream. This is real. Some, of course, much more worse than others. But our grief during this season is real. So go ahead and cry until you can cry no more. But, but, don't forget the words of the psalmist who said weeping may stay for a night, but joy comes in the morning. 
Don't forget as you cry that you will not and should not cry forever. Weeping may last for a night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. I remember a story that John Meacham told in his biography of Andrew Jackson called American Lion. Uh, he, he quoted a, a, a country boy who had grown up with Andrew Jackson and in his unique vernacular described how that Andrew Jackson, though, though smaller uh, than he was, the boy telling the story, now a man, uh, would, would always come back from, from a, a, a setback. He talked about how they'd wrestle when they were kids and, and, and he said, I could throw him three times out of four but he would never stay throwed. I like that line so much. I would throw him three out of four times, but he would never stay throwed. Listen, guys, in many different ways, in our own unique individual realities, we have been throwed, if you please, but we cannot stay throwed. What that means is at some point, at some point, at some point, we have to get up now and we have to get back to the fight. Weeping may last for a night, but in the morning, in the morning, we have to keep moving forward into our God-inspired futures. We can't hurry that process, but we have to know that that new morning is coming for each of us. So cry, but at some point you're going to need to stop crying. You're going to have to get up. Here's the second step to turn setbacks into victories. It's to encourage yourself in God. Encourage yourself in God. Here's what Samuel tells us. David was greatly distressed. All right, now remember what's happened now. He's cried and his men have cried until they don't even have the strength to cry anymore. And then David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. Or as the King James says it famously, David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now David was not only personally grieved in this moment, but now he faced a crisis of leadership because of the grief of his men his followers. Scripture tells us that he was greatly distressed, but he quickly traveled the distance from distress to encouragement. How did he do this? Because he encouraged himself. He found strength in God. Now, before David could lead his warriors to healing, he had to lead himself to healing. The most important person any of us leads is ourselves. The most important leadership is self-leadership. Now, whether you're formally leading anyone or not, you must lead yourself well, especially if you want to turn a setback into victory. At some point, we each have to learn how to raise our own hope levels. At some point, we have to learn how to encourage ourselves. How do we do this? Well, we lead ourselves to God. Now, there's a psalm that I like 
to reference when I'm talking about this kind of thing. It's actually not a psalm of David, but it's, it's in line with, the, with the, day, the way that David wrote and the way David thought and what David practiced in this story. It's the 42nd psalm. I'll just read the fifth verse. The psalmist says, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. I love this. This psalmist acknowledges the reality of his downcast soul. And he talks to himself. He talks to his soul, the essence of who he was. He basically says to the entirety of his being, why do I feel so badly in this moment? Hey, soul, why are you downcast within me? And then, having acknowledged the feeling that was very real, he spoke truth to himself. He said, put your hope in God. He evidently had had enough experience in his relationship with God to know that regardless how bad things might look, and regardless how he may feel in response to that, that God had come through for him time and time again. So, soul, you're downcast. Okay, why are you so disturbed? Put your hope in God. And then he says, for I will yet praise him. He knows he's going to come through this on the other side. A beautiful example of how we should encourage ourselves. We don't deny our feelings, but we speak truth to our feelings. And the truth is rooted in the truth of God and God's love for us, and God's power to help us. And so he knew that he would end up hoping and praising God. Now, this principle's especially important when you do have leadership responsibilities. You know, um, leadership has, has um, responsibilities that come with it that are pleasant and sometimes not so pleasant and sometimes it's the 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 same thing is true about the same thing so for instance i both don't like and do like the fact that i have moments in my weekly rhythm when i have to be in a condition to encourage others for instance we launch our week every week as a staff team with a 10 o'clock staff team prayer time uh, usually it's in the prayer center at our West Orange campus. Now it's a, a virtual prayer time. But typically I start that meeting by uh, encouraging, I hope, I intend to, it's what I try to do, by encouraging my team. We talk about good things that happened the last week. We talk about the weekend and lives that are being changed. And uh, uh, by the time it's all said and done, we're encouraging each other. I actually like the fact that I know that by 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning, I have to be encouraged in order to be an encourager. Sometimes, just to be frank, on a Monday, which is post-Sunday, which is an interesting day for a pastor who put all of his energies into what we do on Sundays, sometimes on Monday the fact is I'll allow myself to feel a little bit of discouragement if I'm inclined to discouragement on that day. I don't try to deny my feelings. But I know by 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning I have to be up, and I actually like the fact 
that I know I have to encourage myself. And what I've learned is I can't wait for external encouragement. There's nobody around whose, whose job it is to encourage me so that I can be the encourager I have to be as a leader. The fact is no one else is going to own the condition of my own soul. It's me and my soul and God. When I had kids at home, I couldn't bring my adult discouragement to the dinner table. And I couldn't leak my adult discouragement in the car when we were driving home from school or, 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 or practice or something like that. Now, this is a particularly important point in the middle of this crisis where families are quarantined at home together. At times like this, parents have to bring their game. I don't mean... I don't mean fake it like everything's fine. I mean be in a position where you have encouraged yourself. You must find strength in God. The leadership of a parent is the most important leadership in the world. And then I think that particularly those of us who are Christ followers need to feel a certain amount of leadership responsibility in this crisis in whatever context we live and work uh, and, and have community in. I, I think that we need to see ourselves as having a need to bring to leadership to our place of business, to our neighborhoods, to our communities. We have to be hope dealers. We must move from distress to finding strength in God because the world is looking to people like us to bring them encouragement. And we should rise to the occasion. Here's the third step. It's to inquire of God, what should I do now? What should I do now? Here's what the text says. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? David now moves from help me feel better to what do I do now? Now in my experience, prayer is the single most important means of knowing what to do next. Notice David inquired of God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't a lot of other things that we can do to get a sense of what to do next, but, but I think that prayer is the most important thing. Many, many times I've mentioned that there are many different kinds of prayer, but again and again I try to remind all of you who listen to me speak that prayer at its core is communication with God about what we are feeling, thinking, doing and planning to do together. So when I practice prayer, as part of my prayer, I'm talking with God and trying to listen about what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm doing, and what I should be planning to do. And I'm trying in my time of prayer to, to get aligned with what God's thinking, feeling, doing, and planning to do. Um, I hope that you can understand how singularly important this kind of prayer is. This is inquiring of God. This is talking with God in very practical ways. God, what are we going to do next? What should I do that you're going to help me do and help me succeed at doing? 
And expect when you pray this way that God's going to find a way to show you what to do. Now, this kind of prayer happens best in a context where you're reading Scripture and uh, spending time in healthy spiritual community, which you must probably do now virtually. But nonetheless, you're having those kinds of conversations with God. You're reading Scripture. You're in a healthy spiritual community where you're discussing this thing with other positive and spiritual people, and you expect that God is going to show you what to do. Don't stress out about it, but do inquire of the Lord. Here's number four. Take positive action. Here's what Samuel writes happened next. David inquired of the Lord. We've already talked about that part. Shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Pursue them, he answered. God answered. You will certainly overtake them and succeed in the rescue. So now, when David gets direction as to what to do, he immediately does it. He takes action. Now, this entire story to this point seems to have happened over just a few hours. Events are moving rapidly. But from this point forward, all of David's actions are decisive and confident and courageous. It was now time to pursue what was lost and to get it back and more. Now, one of the most important qualities of successful people, and for that matter, successful organizations, is a bias for action. A bias for action. So we should pray like crazy, but we can't use our inquiring of God as a crutch or an excuse for inaction. At some point, we have to take positive action to actualize a preferred future. One of my proudest moments is the day-long Tuesday meeting that our core staff held at our West Orange campus of the Life Christian Church, the week that we really realized that our world was radically changed because of the COVID-19 crisis. When we realized that we wouldn't be able to physically gather on Sundays or anytime, that our staff of some 30 people would have to, for the most part, work remotely. Uh, you experienced similar things in your world, I, am, I have no doubt. Well, we spent a, a socially distanced day asking, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do to continue to be a church, uh, the church that we've always been, but even better in spite of the fact that we cannot physically gather? What do we do now to serve people in need in our congregation? What do we do now to serve people in need in our communities? We had a short timeline. A lot of what needed to happen needed to happen by Sunday, and it was Tuesday. Uh, and then a whole lot of other things needed to happen by the next week. Well, in the space of uh, just a few days, our team accomplished a number of things that was just a result of, of them having a bias for action. Uh, these actions included recreating our Sundays for an all-online experience, standing up TLCC-TV in order to build an online community and provide programming like daily devotions and prayer meetings and worship hours and children's programming and fun community building programs, uh, opening a 24-hour prayer line, a 24-hour helpline, moving our life groups to a virtual possibility. 
Um, and, and the fact is that we're still building this airplane while it's flying, but we got it launched. See, a bias for action says it doesn't have to be perfect. I don't need to know all the answers, but I'm going to pursue something positive. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing to pursue something right now, especially in light of this crisis? What are you doing to say, I'm going to take back what was lost, or I'm going to make a positive difference, or I'm going to get better in some way so that I come out on the other side of this thing better than I was when I went into it, or I'm going to create some new reality, some positive thing that does not yet exist except in my mind, and I'm going to take action to bring that thing to reality. What are you doing? All of us have to be saying, what should I be pursuing now? And then I want to challenge all of us as Christ followers. What actions are we taking during this crisis to do the works of Jesus in a hurting world? What actions are we taking as Christ followers to do the works of Jesus in this hurting world? And so, uh, for instance, I'm grateful for the work that our Plus Life leaders and volunteers have been doing to serve people in need at this time. They've put on masks and gloves and gone to work to provide tens of thousands of dollars of food to communities in Essex, Passaic, and Bergen counties. This is now approaching $100,000 of food that we've been able to provide along with our partners to people who are hungry during this time. And that's just one of many ways that our teams are serving people in need during this crisis. Now, has this involved some level of risk on the part of people volunteering to go out and serve? And by the way, does putting on an online worship experience, even with the limited amount of people that we're using to do it, and even with all the precautions that we're taking around social distancing and all the other protocols, does that involve some risk? Well, the answer is yes, it does. It does. Uh, since when has being a Christian and doing the works of Jesus not involved risk? From the time that Jesus went to the cross and died for the sins of the world, Christianity has been advanced by people who have taken risk for the sake of the gospel. By the way, it's interesting to note that one of the primary reasons for the spread of Christianity in the uh, early part of the Christian church was the way that Christians cared for the sick. Sociologist Rodney Stark makes this point and ha has studied this at great length. Christianity grew uh, for a lot of reasons, but a primary reason Stark's uh, uh, advocates is because Christians served the sick in a way that no one had ever served the sick before. So for instance, during the reign of the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius around AD 165, an epidemic of what was probably smallpox killed somewhere between a third and a fourth of the population, including the emperor. A little less than 100 years later came a second ep epidemic in which at its height, 5,000 people a day were dying just in the city of Rome alone. Now, uh, those who had been shaped by Greek thought and Roman practice had no slot for what it meant to risk oneself to serve another person who was sick. 
Uh, Homer's writings had not prescribed anything like that. None of the Greek gods, like Zeus, had said anything about how you should care for someone who is sick. But the Christians had uh, a, a Savior who, had, who cared for the lepers, touched them while they were unclean, and, and told his disciples to go and to lay hands on the sick. And so they served the sick and dying. Dionysius, a third century bishop of Alexandria, wrote about their actions during those two plagues, the Christians' actions. He wrote, heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains." Uh, you know, a, another uh, uh, reality is that leprosy was uh, something that meant isolation and uncleanness and death for the leper. But it was an early church father named Basil who had an idea to build a place to love and care for the leper. He said, they don't have money. They don't even have to pay for it. We'll raise the money. He and his brother, another church uh, father, began to raise money and created what was the first hospital. In fact, the early Christian church, acknowledging the work of Basil and his brother Gregory, uh, decreed at the Council of Nicaea that wherever a cathedral was built, a hospital must be built as well. These hospitals, built by these early Christians, were the world's first voluntary charitable organizations. Look, all that I'm saying is that I believe as Christ followers, we need to always be engaged. We need to be on the front lines. We need to be finding a way to be a positive solution to the challenges our world face, whether it's this pandemic or any other crisis we may face in the future. This has been the way Christianity has advanced since the time of Jesus himself. I'm not promoting foolishness. We need to do everything we can within reason to protect ourselves and those around us. But I am unabashedly promoting an activist Christianity that finds a way to pursue positive things and to serve those in need. So I encourage you, take positive action to pursue the best for your life and find ways to get involved in bringing healing to the world around you. Now, this can be done in so many ways. Everyone isn't called to restock food pantries, but we are called to do something. Maybe it's through an innovative use of technology or the way you're leveraging your business or your resources, but take positive action. And here's the fifth and final point, and I'm going to be quick with this, but it's a wonderful point, I think, from this story. Expect to succeed and end up with more than you had at the beginning. So David and his men pursue, they take positive action, and then they, they find the Amalekites partying in a valley called of Bezor, and we're told that David fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day, and none of them got away. David recovered everything. David brought everything back. He took all the flocks and herds, and his men drove them ahead of the other livestock, saying, this is David's plunder. Now listen, when you see the word plunder, it means that not only did David get everything back that was lost, but he got more. He got 
plunder. And we're told later in the story that he actually sent some of the plunder to some of his friends, the elders in Judah, so that he could share with them what he had gotten out of what began as a terrible crisis. Listen, I want you to believe during this time that not only are you going to recover from the losses of this season, but that somehow you're going to end up with more. It's like Bob uh, Wyland, who I began this talk uh, discussing. Bob would tell you that he had more after he lost his legs than before. It didn't mean that his loss wasn't real. It just meant that God redeemed his suffering, and he used it for Bob's good and others' good and for God's glory. Somehow I believe that you and I are going to have stories to tell like that in coming weeks and months and years. So, so before I say the benediction, let me just sum it up like this. Cry until you can cry no more, and then at some point, stop crying. Find your strength in God. Ask Him what to do next. And then when you get a hint, even just a hint of positive actions that you can take, take them, pursue, go after it, and then believe that God can work in your life to bring you more and better than you ever had before. You can turn setbacks into victories by God's grace. Now, I want to say the benediction. Uh, before I do, I want to remind all of our TLCC uh, members and regulars that uh, if this is the time you choose to tithe and give, that you can do that online now. Uh, you can see how to do that on your screen or device. And um, I would say to anyone else who, if you just feel inclined to uh, uh, support the mission of the Life Christian Church during this time, uh, you can uh, join us if you'd like. And you'll notice that uh, there are several different things that you can give to, but included there is a COVID-19 response. And we're using these funds to serve in ways beyond uh, ways we have ever served before. And so, listen, I want to thank all of our TLCC regulars for your faithfulness and tithing and your generosity in giving. And for anyone else who'd like to uh, support the ministry of TLCC today, I say thank you to you as well. God bless you. Now, let me say the benediction. Wherever you are, I pray that you'll receive this blessing now. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord be gracious to you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. I pray that this week that you'll think about what it means to begin to get on the winning side of a difficult season. Doesn't mean that it's going to happen in a moment. We might need to work our way through some things, but by God's grace, I want each of us to believe that we can turn setbacks into victories and that God will help us. And I pray that each of us will take yet another step towards living the life God dreams for us, that we will hear and receive the words of Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 10, where he promised us life in all of its fullness, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. 
May we each live the life God dreamed for us in every way. God bless you.